This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode features discussions of domestic violence, suicide, institutionalization, and the death of a child. Listener discretion is advised especially for children under 13. Darlene had a dizzying fear of heights. Even the thought of a skyscraper was enough to dim the edges of her vision and loosen the joints in her knees. But the desk clerk at the Chelsea Hotel had placed her on the eighth floor and had no interest in transferring her. She was too rattled to protest, so she slunk to the elevator and held her breath on the ride up. Each pause felt like a new freefall. As she left the elevator, a rush of nerves hit her hard. Someone placed their hand on her shoulder to steady her. Her name was Clara, and she wanted to help. Darlene declined, but Clara wouldn't let go. Her gauzy violet shirt kissed Darlene's skin as she gently squeezed her shoulder. Clara claimed that she had the perfect cure for Darlene's nerves. She would take Darlene to her sitting room. She called it a purple palace that cured all ills. Darlene offered a tight smile and tried to walk away. This was New York after all. Don't make eye contact and they'll leave you alone. Clara's grip tightened further and she forced Darlene to return her gaze. Her eyes glinted. They were a brown, so dark, it was almost black. Darlene did need to rest. A kind stranger was offering to help her. She could be amenable. A distracted-looking bohemian type bumped into the two, and Darlene shook her mind free from Clara's hold. She didn't want to go with this strange woman. She tried to turn towards her door. Even the view out an eight-story window seemed better than Clara's beady gaze. Clara plied her with words like comfort and safety. In a new city, the world could feel so frighteningly large. The womb would help with that. It would shrink the entire universe down to a more manageable size. Darlene opened her mouth to acquiesce, but she couldn't speak. There were webs in her throat. They spilled out of her mouth in long silver tendrils, sticky and strong. Darlene tried to scream as they began to dance and loop, forming a squeaking, stretching rope. Clara used it to drag her the rest of the way. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Chelsea Hotel, one of New York City's most storied and tragic buildings. 
and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history. The summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Hotel Chelsea, otherwise known as the Chelsea Hotel, or the Chelsea to its residents, sits on New York City's West 23rd Street, between 7th and 8th Avenues, at the heart of the neighborhood that bears its name. The Chelsea is known for two things, its bohemian clientele, many of whom stayed for years, and its strange and plentiful tragedies. The historic building has become a frequent site for suicides, thanks to its 12-story height. But many of the deaths at the hotel have stranger origins. Writer Dylan Thomas often suffered from poor health, and his respiratory condition deteriorated almost immediately after checking into the Chelsea. He was hospitalized after he fell into a coma on the night of November 5, 1953. He passed away four days later at the age of 39. The Chelsea Hotel's most famous casualty is Nancy Spungen, the girlfriend of Sid Vicious. She was found stabbed in her bathroom on October 12, 1978, less than a year after the building had been named a New York City landmark. An edifice of red brick and windows at the center of New York City's theater district in the late 19th century, the Chelsea is a 250-unit combination of Queen Anne Revival and Victorian Gothic architecture. It opened in 1884 and was the tallest building in the city at that time. But before the Chelsea was built at 222 West 23rd Street, the address was held by the Excelsior Building during the 1870s. The Excelsior was a staggering size for the time period, holding six floors of stores, apartments, furniture storage, and even an armory for New York's 8th Regiment. This meant families and customers constantly moving in and out. It also meant that the entire interior of the building was highly flammable. Thomas Murphy loved his job. He took pride in forging weapons and other equipment for the 8th Regiment of the Union Army, but he enjoyed his profession even more, knowing that his handiwork may not ever be needed. 
The war between the states was now 13 years behind him, but he still relived it in his nightmares. He heard shots and smelled the smoke and blood as clearly as he had all those years ago. More than anything, the war made him value his family. Thomas never missed a meal with them and was constantly delighted by the imaginations of his children. His wife, Melinda, said Grace, two of his four children were yawning at the table and the youngest, Joseph, looked pale. He was concerned for the boy's health, but Melinda told him not to worry. They'd missed their nap today, that was all. He caught a faint whiff of smoke but assumed it was just a piece of their dinner that had stuck inside the cast iron oven. It would burn away with the embers. He tickled Joseph awake and joined the children to help Melinda with the after-dinner chores. Afterwards, the little ones got into their nightgowns, kissed their parents goodnight, and trundled off to bed. Thomas sighed, watching them go, reminding himself how lucky he was. But the smell had not gone away. In fact, he could have sworn it was growing. He asked Belinda if she had caught a scent of the ash as well. She wrinkled her nose, sniffing the air. Melinda left her chair and headed into the kitchen. Her eyes were wide when she returned, and her voice shook with rising panic as she told Thomas they needed to leave immediately. Thomas and his family lived next door to his place of work, this made it easy to come home at night or to help if one of the children was sick. But it also meant that a stockpile of ammunition was sitting on the other side of their bedroom wall. It began with small pops, almost imperceptible. Moments later, Thomas heard the small whoosh of a flame igniting. They were out of time. Adrenaline surged through Thomas. He yelled to Melinda, telling her to wake the children while he ran outside to raise the alarm. Thomas could see plumes of smoke escaping from the basement, and the first floor windows near the elevator shaft were beginning to swell from the heat. With only two hands and four small children, Melinda was going to struggle if she had to pull the kids out by herself. He sprinted back towards the building, but he slipped on the stairs. His chin hit the edge of a stair, and he could feel the skin split. He scrambled up and bolted for his family's rooms. The air was heavier now. Thomas could feel the heat against his face. He grasped the doorknob, but jerked his hand away as the hot metal scorched his skin. He yanked down his shirt sleeve and grabbed the knob again, pushing through the pain. The smell of burned flesh mingled with the scent of ash and destruction. He was greeted by a cloud of smoke, but no flames. Thomas tried to scream for Melinda and the children, but he could only get out the first syllable of her name before he dissolved into coughs. The thick air filled his lungs, making it impossible for him to breathe. He pulled one edge of his collar against his face, but the material was too thin to be a strong barrier against the clouds of smoke. He used his free hand to feel around the space. Blood thundered in his eardrums as he frantically searched for his children. He stumbled over furniture, but his hands closed on nothing but empty air. 
amid the crackling fire and bending wood, he heard a child cry. Thomas wasn't sure if the sound was an echo of a memory or one of his children in danger, but he raced towards it nonetheless. His head was starting to feel heavy, and his vision seemed to close in as the smoke stung his eyes. And then he felt the telltale tug of a child's hand at his pant leg, pulling him towards the exit. Still blinded by the stinging heat and ash, he lifted the small body into his arms, as if it weighed nothing, and sprinted back out of the house and up the stairs. Thomas's legs gave out when he reached the sidewalk. He cradled the child to his chest and took in deep gulps of fresh air as their world burned behind them. He looked down at the boy's still face, finally able to tell that it was his son, Joseph. Joseph's skin was smudged with soot, but Thomas could see his nostrils flaring as he breathed in the fresh air in a strangely serene slumber. Thomas breathed again, a wave of temporary relief washing over him. Thomas talked to him, trying to get his son to wake, but Joseph did not stir. His breathing started to slow. Thomas found himself shaking the boy. Suddenly, Joseph's eyes bulged open and then fell from their sockets to the sidewalk, melting as they went. His flesh took on a mottled texture. His skin dried like paper, leaving only splinters of blackened bone. Terrified, Thomas called for help, but no one seemed to see him, even as the neighbors had begun to congregate in small groups watching their home burn. He clutched his son again, but Joseph's bones were brittle. He was not sure how long he laid on the sidewalk, scooping the remnants of the boy back into his trouser pockets. Tears slid down his ash-covered face. A small hand patted his head. Thomas turned and recoiled in shock. There was Joseph, covered in soot, but bright-eyed. Thomas hugged the boy tightly as explosions filled the sky. Despite the fire brigade's best efforts, the flames were growing. Thomas could feel that familiar heat against his cheeks again. He took hold of Joseph's hand and instructed him to follow closely. Thomas took two steps toward the street, but Joseph lingered, frozen. Thomas followed Joseph's pointed finger to the smoldering ruins of the church next door. The cathedral's brilliant white marble was slowly being covered by a dark snowfall of ash and embers. The interior of the church was now visible, along with the congregation's motto. Joseph asked his father what it said. Thomas's voice shook as he read the words, Suffer little children to come unto me. Thomas felt the small hand fall out of his. He grasped at air again whipping around, searching for his son. The street was a flurry of motion as water vainly arched up toward the towering flames. He could find no sign of his missing child. Then a tiny silhouette caught his eye, just above the word 
suffer. Joseph waved to him, sitting atop the marble. Then he disappeared. Before it became the illustrious Chelsea Hotel, the same area was home to the Excelsior Building, a complex owned by businessman James Ingersoll. A member of Tammany Hall, he used the Excelsior to embezzle money that the city treasury marked for armory funds. In order to cover up their fraud, Tammany placed the 8th Regiment in two floors of the building. Other floors were used for storefronts and storage. The Excelsior was completed in 1871, but Ingersoll's ruse was short-lived. On February 1, 1878, the Excelsior and two nearby churches burned down after a fire started in the basement. The storage of weapons and ammunition in the armory led to a series of explosions causing over half a million dollars in property damage. That would be over $12.8 million in 2019. A mere six years after this tragedy, the Hotel Chelsea rose where the Excelsior had once stood. Perhaps it was this building's destruction that laid the groundwork for Chelsea's famously sinister atmosphere. Some have said that the Chelsea was built on spoiled ground, the address forever tainted, by that consuming inferno ignited within the Excelsior. That was the first documented tragedy to occur where the Chelsea now stands, but it certainly wasn't the last. And as we'll soon see, there are worse ways to die than a fire. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story of the Chelsea Hotel. From its very beginning, the Chelsea was a revolutionary structure. The building's architect, Philip Hubert, pioneered New York's apartment co-ops, buildings where tenants shared not just common areas, but also fuel and services. The first Hubert Home Club was founded in 1880, and he opened several more in the following years. Hubert reserved several apartments for the laborers who had constructed the new building at 222 West 23rd, and the remaining ones were quickly filled in by writers, musicians, and actors who flocked to the thriving theater district. But as the new century dawned and Upper Manhattan rose, the neighborhood of Chelsea fell out of favor. The New York theater community moved to Times Square, and the co-op went bankrupt in 1905. The Chelsea was quickly reopened as a residential hotel. Mark Twain was a frequent guest, along with novelist and critic William Dean Howells and socialist organizer and painter John French Sloan. Sloan was one of the founders of the Ashcan School of American Art, 
and frequently painted the scenes he saw outside his window at the Chelsea. But not every tenant was a luminary. Some were just looking to take advantage of the hotel's respect for guests' privacy. And sometimes, privacy is the worst thing for a troubled mind. The edges of Etelka's reality had begun to blur ten years ago. Her future husband, Arthur, had just bought her a penthouse apartment at the Hotel Chelsea. He was to arrive on a passenger liner Wednesday morning, April 17, 1912. She could see the port from her balcony. She had wanted to sail with him, but her family insisted she couldn't travel with him until they were married. So she waited patiently for the RMS Titanic to arrive. He never came. Her family forced her to move back downstairs with them on the fifth floor. Etelka protested, saying search parties hadn't found Arthur's body after the demise of the supposedly unsinkable ship. Her parents told her that didn't mean that he was alive. But she still went every day, walking 20 minutes to the bank of the Hudson. She walked the quay in the freezing rain, and New York snow, month after month, year after year. She was closing in on ten years of waiting, watching, hoping, with her whole body and soul. Sometimes, when her family was sleeping, Itelka could swear that she was with him, aboard the ship of dreams. She could feel the kiss of ice against her cheek and the warmth of Arthur beside her. The salt spray stung their noses as they walked the deck together, the ever-present hum of the engine mingling with their conversations. But then she'd be back in her room. The ice and salt and hum would disappear, and all she was left with was the widow's walk. Her parents had tried to find her another partner, but she did not know how to explain that she still had one. Some part of Arthur was with her, even now. She did not need another suitor or another apartment. She needed to stay here in case he came. She even warned the new occupant of the penthouse that Arthur might come looking for her. The woman had doubted her. They'd argued. Etelka's father got involved. Etelka was sent to a sanitarium to recuperate and returned several weeks later. Her family wouldn't let her walk to the pier anymore. When they left her alone, they locked her in her room. Etelka snuck out her window and onto the balcony. She couldn't see the ships, but she would know when he was near. She was sure of it. The hours ticked by on the ancient clock her grandparents had brought over from Russia. When it became too cold even for her, she headed inside, out of the icy Atlantic wind. In the harsh light of day, she found herself standing both in the kitchen and on the deck of a ship. The floor was polished so thoroughly that she could see her own reflection. Arthur had brought her here many times, but never during the day. 
She searched for him among the throng of passengers. Arthur had a warm but familiar energy that usually kept him from sticking out in a crowd. So she paced the deck, ducking into every group and giving them a quick look before moving on to the next. There was an incessant chattering of other voices in her head, but they were too loud and numerous to understand. She thought that she heard her name, but she couldn't be sure. She wasn't sure of anything anymore. The minute Atelka looked up at the bright blue sky, it shifted to a deep navy. The temperature dropped. She shivered in her house dress. People bumped past her on their way to the other side of the deck. Itelka shuffled out of the way and towards the railing. There were small clumps of ice floating atop the ocean. They dipped in and out of the water, fighting the wake of the massive ship. Itelka shivered, watching the motion. Somehow, it was calming. If she joined the ice in the water, maybe the uncertainty would end. As the thought passed through her mind, she felt her left hand begin to freeze. She watched, spellbound, as the tips of her fingers went from a brilliant pink to a faded blue. Frost rimmed her fingernails, and the sensation kept spreading. Then the pain caught up with her, Her hand weighed her down, buzzing with agony, red hot, and bitingly cold all at once. She raced around the deck, looking for some sort of relief. Salvation came in the form of a fire axe. She seated herself on the ground and raised the axe as her hand throbbed and burned. She wasn't sure if she had the strength to end her suffering, but she had to try. For a moment, she could hear her mother's voice. The ship faded, and she was back in her kitchen. The axe wasn't an axe, but a knife. In an instant, it was gone again. Her fingers were turning black. She had to do this now, or she could lose the rest of her body. Itelka took a deep breath and swung. The first swing severed part of the injured hand, but there were still several spots where the two were connected, and the ice was creeping along them, seeking out her heart, wanting her to forget Arthur, forget herself. Itelka raised the axe again and brought it down. Itelka looked up, It should have hurt, but she felt free, safe for the first time in years. She blinked. Arthur stood by the railing. She couldn't believe it. Her legs were trembling as she stood up. She hid her mangled left wrist behind the folds of her dress. She did not want Arthur to see what had become of her in his absence. He smiled at her, serenely, offering his elbow for her to take. She declined, embarrassed at what she'd done, but she still took her place alongside him. The deck disappeared. 
They were in the penthouse. They were home. Arthur told her not to worry. All she had to do was reach out to him, and he would bring her back to that ship of dreams, and they could spend eternity together. Etelka gave him her hand. They left the kitchen far behind, and she felt her feet touch the polished deck once more. A wave of panic moved through the few stragglers still on deck. Ice was starting to form on the railings. She asked Arthur where they were. He told her that she already knew. She loved Arthur. He had been her world, and everything else had fallen away in his absence. But as she stood next to him in the cold, she felt the waves and pull of the darkness below. She was in his arms, but she felt alone. This wasn't what she wanted, and for the first time, she was sure. The push of the ice threw her and Arthur to the ground. Telka knew what came next. The hull would begin to crack. She raced towards the lifeboats, but they passed through her. Her mother's voice called her name. This was all some terrible delusion her mind had dreamed up to help her move on. Escape was possible. Etelka glanced around the ship, searching for something she could not name. She needed a way out. The boat rocked, and Etelka began to slide. She gripped the railing with her remaining hand. Her right arm screamed as it took her full weight. Arthur watched her, impassive. He made no attempt for survival. He was a gentleman, women and children first. Etelka took a deep breath. She lifted herself up and over the railing. The chunks of ice were much larger now. She was scared. Her mother called her name again. Etelka let go. She should have felt the plunge of the icy water, solid and shocking, but she felt nothing. Just a slide, a squeak, and a world-ending crack. On March 5, 1922, Etelka Graf severed her left hand at the wrist then jumped from the fifth-floor window of the Chelsea Hotel. She landed on a balcony three floors below and was taken to Bellevue Hospital for treatment. They were able to stabilize her self-amputation, but she passed away due to internal injuries a few days later. It was her second recent hospital visit. She had been released from a sanitarium a few weeks prior. Etelka's severed hand was found in her bedroom. Atelka Graf is just one of several guests at Chelsea Hotel who had severe mental illnesses and died in ways that could be accidental or intentional. No one knows why she jumped from the fifth floor or what compelled her to cut off her hand before doing so. On clear nights, Atelka floats just above her fateful window. She never ventures further into the hotel. Occasionally, guests have seen a translucent, severed hand 
in various rooms on her side of the building. Several guests have referred to the hotel as having a black cloud. It makes people feel hopeless and exacerbates the internal problems that they'd already been dealing with. Sid Vicious described the Chelsea as an artistic tornado of death and destruction and love and broken dreams. It's common for the Chelsea's residents to refer to the hotel as a force of nature, and many claim they could no longer be held responsible for their actions once they pass through its doors. While the public will never have answers as to what happened to Atelka Graf or others like her, one thing does remain clear. Something pinned them to this place, both seducing and torturing them. Coming up, we'll see what happens when that something takes human form. Now, back to the story. The late 60s and 70s were the very height of the Chelsea's influence on both the New York art scene and art itself. The hotel lobby held works by the godfather of pop art, Larry Rivers, an avant-garde artist, Brett Whiteley, and modernist Akbar Potemsi, whose contribution was sold at Sotheby's for $1.4 million in 2011. Monkeys and dogs ran up and down the hotel stairs, on break from being trained for the Metropolitan Opera's 1963 production of Aida by resident Catherine Dunham, the choreographer and anthropologist regarded as the matriarch and queen mother of African-American modern dance. One could argue that the 60s and 70s were Chelsea's golden years. You were likely to run into Janis Joplin in the elevator, or Betsy Johnson or Stanley Kubrick, Jim Morrison or Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan or Patti Smith. You might have even seen Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick before she was banned from the hotel for accidentally setting her mattress on fire. While she received one of the Chelsea's rare eviction notices, the rest of the residents weren't particularly phased by the fire. Most of them were awake in the middle of the night anyway, so they all went downstairs to El Quixote, the restaurant that has existed on the ground floor of the hotel since 1930, until the firefighters finished up. It was nearly impossible to rattle the residents of the Chelsea Hotel. The police frequently raided specific apartments, only for officers to show up later looking to buy weed, LSD, or something stronger. But the murder of 20-year-old Nancy Spongin, the girlfriend of Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious, marked a turning point in the casual attitudes of the residents. To say that Sid and Nancy were bad for each other was an understatement. The couple frequently spent days or even weeks abusing heroin and painkillers in their apartment at the Chelsea Number 100. Nancy was confrontational, and though friends described Sid as shy, he demonstrated a volatility when in Nancy's company that often led to mutual abuse. Sometime during the early morning hours of October 12, 1978, Nancy was stabbed. Sid would call down to the front desk at 10 a.m. asking for help. Nancy was already dead in the couple's bathroom. 
Many of Sid and Nancy's neighbors blamed themselves for not realizing that something was wrong. After a guest admitted to hearing female moans the night Nancy was stabbed. But the noise level and even the moans and crying themselves weren't out of the ordinary for any night at the Chelsea. Similar sounds frequently had less sinister causes. A bad trip, an impromptu rehearsal, or even strange performance art. They didn't realize that Spongin was weeping because she was bleeding, and her boyfriend was too high to help her. It was these moments that forced the artistic enclave of the Chelsea to consider what the cost of art actually was. They prided themselves on being a community, but community wasn't as easy as smiling in the elevator or bumming a cigarette. Jason was new to the city in July of 1969. But somehow, as he stepped off the bus, he felt right at home. He had felt compelled to join the ranks of transplants in New York City. Ever since he had read about Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters road trip in 64, he had longed to leave his rural Midwestern upbringing behind him and embrace a truly bohemian lifestyle. He wanted to follow his idols, Burroughs, Ginsburg, Kerouac. The perfect place to do that was the Chelsea Hotel. A shiver ran up his spine as he entered the lobby, and he found himself sitting in an armchair just to hear the residents discuss how bad Nixon was, even though he'd only been president for a few months, how landing on the moon was going to end the world, and how boring the place had gotten since Warhol left. Jason stood just beneath the winding grand staircase with its intricate iron embellishments, catching snatches of sounds floating down from the floors above. Classical piano, jazz trumpet, and even a folk musician wailing away about Vietnam. His room had a few blooming spots of mold on the walls, the water never switched from hot to cold. Screams, shouts, and singing bled through the wall every night. It wasn't the Ritz, but this was part of being an artist. Jason couldn't wait to sit down at his typewriter. The constant jam sessions had been inspiring when he first arrived, but they seemed to be happening every minute of every hour of every day. Jason was convinced someone was keeping an orangutan in the building, thanks to the hoots he heard in the middle of the night. But the worst was the banging. Sometimes it was heavy, punctuated by yelling. Sometimes it was soft, almost tender, before ending with a scream and a cry. Eventually, he figured out it was the apartment to his left. He'd been just about to knock on the door to say something, when he heard a cry, like the world was ending. Then the crying became a laugh. A record player kicked on and the two voices began to sing along in perfect harmony. All was well, until the slamming began again the next night. He heard something break and the record played again, the downbeats punctuating every jarring bang. He mentioned the noise to someone in the lobby but the old-timer just shook his head. Artists, he said, waving his paint-covered hands. 
But Jason couldn't let it go. The Chelsea was a happening place, and it was normal for residents to hang outside their rooms. So he sat in his doorway with a copy of Naked Lunch and waited for his neighbors to emerge. The man who opened the door looked like he'd walked out of a Warhol film with long legs, thick glasses, and intentionally messy hair. He introduced himself as Mark with an earnest, welcoming smile. After only talking with him for a few moments, he wanted to hear everything about what Jason was working on. Mark frequently held court with the other tenants in the lobby or in his apartment, and Jason couldn't quite get him to answer what he actually did for a living. The woman, Heather, was much different. The sliver of a shadow at high noon. Jason rarely ever caught a glimpse of her, and when he did, she was never what he expected. She wore different wigs and lived life as though she were on stage. She was given to calling inconveniences tragedies and celebrated the smallest victory with operatic pomp and circumstance. He'd offered to carry her groceries once. She called him a prince among men and recited Oscar Wilde's Salome to him. When he recognized the quote, she leaned in and said softly, And now we're in love, aren't we? Before crossing to her door. But when she realized they lived next door to each other, she stopped. Heather held his gaze for a moment, registering the secret they shared. Jason wanted to ask her if he should tell, but he knew the answer. Mark told Jason that Heather had some kind of nervous condition. It was why she wore wigs and rarely left the house. She was afraid of people, he said, even when they were harmless. Mark's canines had practically glinted as he said the word, and Jason felt uneasy. As impressed as he was by Mark, he had been on the other side of the wall during the fights. He had heard glass breaking. He'd heard the screams and the tears. But nothing was worse than the silence that followed. Jason would listen to the wall, waiting to hear the two voices again. He was afraid that he would only hear one. For what felt like ages, he heard nothing. Not even the faintest creak of a floorboard. It was like the room next door had simply stopped existing. Jason almost jumped out of his skin at the sound. Someone was at his door. He straightened himself and opened it slowly. There stood Mark with his wolfish smile. He wanted to give Jason a formal tour of the hotel. Jason tried to decline, but Mark wouldn't give up. Jason told him he would meet him outside. When the other man left, Jason put his ear to the wall. The room was silent. They started walking down the hall together. Mark would stop in front of each door, always spouting some rumor about a resident who had occupied the room a few years ago. Jason could almost believe that he wasn't making any of this up. But Mark's eyes kept glancing back down the hall to his own apartment. Jason had been alone with Mark many times before, but this time, 
he noticed how truly remote the Chelsea could be, even when nearly every room had been booked. Jason stopped to peer up the stairs, just to check if anyone else was around. But the wrought iron cave was strangely empty, even as the ever-present sounds of the residents thudded around them. He was standing in the eye of a hurricane of sex, booze, and drugs. When Jason turned back around, Mark was standing right behind him. He could feel the other man's breath near his face. Jason took a step back and slipped off the landing. He clutched the railing to prevent himself from falling completely, but the metal steps bit into his leg as he crumpled to his knees. Mark made no effort to help him up. There was a tension in Mark's body that Jason had never noticed before. The easygoing persona was starting to tear at the seams. Jason got to his feet clumsily. Mark turned back around and headed from the landing to the next set of stairs. Jason walked around him, grateful that he had an easy escape path if he needed it. He hoped he was giving Heather the room to breathe while they were on their disturbing outing. Then he heard her. Mark kept walking, but Jason couldn't. He turned down the stairs and started racing back towards the second floor. He tripped over his own feet in haste. He could hear Mark's footsteps stop at the landing, but he didn't have time to care. An eclectically dressed woman was standing in the doorway of Mark and Heather's apartment. The lemon bar she made had tumbled to the floor with a broken bottle of wine beside them. Her hands were clapped over her mouth in horror. It wasn't Heather who he'd heard screaming. He knew what that meant, and he didn't want to look. But for Heather, he had to. He put a reassuring hand on the other woman's shoulder and told her to call the police. Against his better judgment, Jason went inside. His foot slid through a pool of blood, and he used the door to stabilize himself. Bile rose up in his throat, but he swallowed it down. The lights were out, but the rays of sun struggled through the gauzy drapes to reveal a crimson Pollock painting of blood and brains. He saw Heather's head. Her mouth was covered with duct tape. Her straw-like hair was tinged with crimson. He found himself realizing he'd never seen her real hair before. He felt the strange urge to grab a wig from the wall to cover her up, to make her feel less vulnerable. But her eyes stopped him. They were still staring in abject horror, her gaze fixed on the apartment door. He couldn't bear to get a better look at the situation. Jason made for the door and carefully peeked out into the hall. The girl with the broken lemon bars was standing with Mark farther down the corridor. He was comforting her. Jason swallowed bile again. Mark was probably feeding her lies right now. She'd never seen what happened when the doors were closed. Jason knew he'd known the whole time and did nothing. Jason crept forward on the tops of his toes, 
trying to keep from making a sound. Mark had seen him by the door, but maybe he still thought that Jason was inside, examining the crime scene. Carefully, he inched around the woman and Mark. The two were locked in a hug, and he could hear her sobbing into Mark's shoulder as Mark rubbed her back. He made it to the other side of the hallway and took a careful step. The old metal gave him away. He snuck a glance back at Mark and found the other man watching him closely. His eyes were hard. Jason didn't want to see what Mark planned. He ran down the rest of the stairs, rapping on every door he saw, screaming for someone to listen. But no one stirred. He heard plenty of noises from within. Laughter, lovemaking, Walter Cronkite droning on about the news of the day from a television set. The hotel was full of people living their own lives, ignorant or numb to the pain around them, just like him. Jason finally reached the front desk. He ripped the phone from the manager and dialed 911 with trembling fingers. The phone cut out. Jason looked up at Mark's snarling face. And then Jason's world ended too. While the death of Nancy Spongin is by far the most famous tragedy at the Chelsea Hotel, Sid and Nancy's stay is by no means the sole incident of domestic violence the location has seen. Long-term resident Gerald Busby told the New York Times that his casual conversation with his neighbor was interrupted by the police breaking down the door to arrest the man for shooting his wife. But those are just the bits of violence tied to living people. The sounds of screaming fights can be heard in empty rooms. Doors slam and running feet travel down halls, even on empty floors. Some guests report developing strong feelings of animosity towards their partner that they couldn't explain. Another guest noted that a ghost helped her calm down enough to leave an abusive relationship. Whether or not the Hotel Chelsea is a true vortex for tragedy, it has fallen on difficult times in recent years. A minority shareholder's takeover of the property has left it in disarray since 2010. Tenants have been evicted without prior notice, and rooms have been gutted illegally. Famous art pieces that once adorned the lobby have been removed by management, only to show up at auction soon afterward. The Chelsea stopped taking new reservations in 2011, and the few remaining residents continue to fight to stay in their apartments using New York City's strong tenants' rights laws. But their relationship with their landlords have become increasingly hostile, resulting in injunctions, work stoppages, and lawsuits. The new owners intended for the hotel to open its doors to guests again in 2019, but the website remains shuttered. And as of June 2019, there's been no announcement of an opening date. The renovation appears to be a full overhaul, and one is left to wonder how much of the iconic hotel will actually be left. 
As poet and tenant Edgar Lee Masters wrote in 1936 in his poem, The Hotel Chelsea, Anita, soon this Chelsea hotel will vanish before the city's merchant greed. Wreckers will wreck it, and in its stead, more lofty walls will swell. This old street's populous, then who will know about its ancient grandeur, marble stairs, its paintings, onyx mantles, courts, the airs, of a time now long ago. It would be one final tragedy for the Chelsea to close permanently, but it might be an even greater one for it to lose the artistic soul and symbolism it holds within the culture of New York City. But it's hard to believe the spirits of the hotel would allow that to happen. Some will visit gently, crossing rooms in the middle of the night and sitting softly on the bed. Others will rage against the dying of the light, keeping the party going long after the last of the current residents have gone. Thanks again for tuning into our Haunted Places Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd to August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Haunted Places next Thursday. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new Parcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy this show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Maggie Admire. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs> <laughs>